Welcome back to Screen Time. I'm Rokan. I'm Richard Roker. Before we get started, let me tell you this, that AmericanEagle.com is bringing you the Row and Roper podcast because they believe that the digital landscape is changing rapidly. And to compete in today's business environment, you need an experienced partner. Since 1995, AmericanEagle.com has partnered with companies of all sizes, offering web design, development, e-commerce, mobile apps, and a digital marketing service you will not believe because they believe that success is right around the corner. Visit AmericanEagle.com today to get started. Richard Roper, you've got a list for us. Well, The Ringer, which is a site I really enjoy. In fact, I think they interviewed me once, and they were very nice to me. It's a popular uh, website, and they came out with a list of the 50 greatest romantic comedies of all time. Now, as they call it, clickbait, whatever you want to call it, Rokan, yep. mm -hmm. it's irresistible when you see that. You know, they do the Twitter thing, and you see all these photos and you know stylized pictures of you know images from movies. And Here's the thing, though. They claim that they were listing the greatest romantic comedies of all time. Now, you know, everybody from Variety to the American Film Institute, you name it over the years, the greatest romantic comedies of all time. What got this list so much attention, and maybe they did it because of this, like, hey, we'll look so stupid and uninformed that we'll get the internet a buzz, is that they listed 50 movies. They ranked them. The different mm -hmm. writers explain why. And some of them were very well written. And some were, I'm like, have you seen the movie that you're writing about? But what really has people up in arms, Ro, including mm -hmm. myself, and I believe you will be as well, is in the 50 greatest romantic comedies of all time. And we can go through some of these in a bit. There's one movie out of the list that was released before 1980. One. <laughs> so... There's no mention of any of the screwball classics of the 30s, the timeless romantic comedies of the 50s, the enduring films of the 70s. So if you're a fan of It Happened One Night, which happened to win the Best Picture, Best Actor, Best Actress, Best Director, and Best Screenplay, the top five, Academy Awards. Right. If you liked it happened one night, too bad for you. Yeah. It did it 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 wasn't quite as good as Sweet Home Alabama with <laughs> Reese Witherspoon. Or if you're a fan of Some Like It Hot, which a few people might know, or the Philadelphia story. Or Annie Hall. And you can say what you want about Woody Allen and we have, but to not have or modern romance from from the great Albert Brooks yep. are just a few of the films that row. Didn't make the cut, but let me give you one example of a film that, that is listed here that I, I thought they have to be fucking kidding me. <laughs> it's called She's the Man. It's listed as the 41st best hmm. romantic comedy of all time. Okay. Uh, Amanda Bynes, mm -hmm. and I, you know, I don't know Amanda Bynes. I know she's had some problems. I'm sure she's a wonderful person. She was never a good actress. Uh, it was an Amanda Bynes vehicle. The plot of this, and it's been done a million times before, she schemes to pose as her twin brother, Sebastian, and takes his place at a new boarding school. She falls in love with her handsome roommate, Duke. But, of course, Duke thinks she's a boy. Mm. So it's one of those gender-bending, uh, you know, clunkily done, horrific uh, would-be comedies. And I have to say, Amanda Bynes portraying a boy with like the short wig and the voice is one of the worst performances <laughs> I've ever seen in my life uh, that anyone would for one second go like, Oh, that's definitely a boy. 
it, and it's all these slapstick hijinks where at one moment she's a girl, then she's got to change her you know outfits in the restroom and all that stuff. For them to put that at at number forty one, saying that if in the century long history of romantic comedies, that's number forty one is an obscenity. That just proves that that movie must have played on USA or TBS on a Saturday afternoon over and over and over yeah. again in the winter. That's the only <laughs> thing that that tells me. Uh, I, I think it's interesting that they started number 50 at 500 Days of Summer. 500 Days of Summer is a pretty great romantic comedy. It is. That it is. deserves to be way higher than 50. Uh, yeah, but I agree. they went with 5,500 there. I see what you're doing. Uh, listen, I think they could have avoided a lot of this criticism. I mean, honestly, they can make the argument at the ringer, hey, everybody you know, saw this, talked about it. If I had my name, my byline on this piece, I would be mortified and embarrassed because you, you sound just completely uninformed. You sound like somebody who doesn't really love you know, film. If they could have saved themselves, if they simply said, we asked our staffers, and I'm sure they're mostly millennials, to list their favorite romantic comedies and their best memories of romantic comedies, then they could have been okay. Even then, I'm like, you know what? Watch a fucking movie that was made before you were born. I mean, uh, Ro, you and I have talked about this through the years. It doesn't happen. Uh, I was in a newsroom once, a television newsroom in Chicago, working on a news program. And every morning, we'd have these big meetings about what's going to be on the next day's show. There was a young producer there. She was probably all of 25 years old. And every time we talked about anything in Chicago history, Harold Washington as the mayor... Uh, the 1968 Democratic Convention, even stuff as recently as the 1996 Democratic Convention in Chicago, she would say proudly, well, that was before my time. I don't know anything about that. And I'd be like, well, and I did say this. I get fired for this nowadays, but I did say to her in this news meeting, I said, can I ask you, if you don't mind, what, what is your faith? Well, I'm Christian. I go, well, Jesus is before your time. <laughs> and you seem to be aware of him. And that is the lamest most intellectually <laughs> lazy excuse for people to ever use, whether they're talking about sports, politics, whatever it is, movies, music, oh, that was before my time. Yeah. As if your birth was more important than Jesus's <laughs> birth and nothing matters. So if they had said these are the, the films that shaped me or made me love yeah. movies, that's fine. But to say the greatest of all time and then they've got, and I agree, look, there's some good films here. Uh, Knocked Up is a funny film, you know, kind of ushered in the era of the raunchy Judd Apatow type right. comedies. All right. I wouldn't have it as the 39th best movie of all time. The Wedding Planner, number 37, is is shit. It's it's a stupid, you know, Jennifer Lopez, obvious, crepola rom-com. There's some great stuff. Bull Durham. Say Anything. Yeah, I love Say Anything. In fact, something it was about just Mary. on the other day. I was watching that. Something about Mary. Love Actually at number 24. I, I would make an argument that it could be higher yes. as an enduring classic romantic comedy. Moonstruck. Harold and Maude, they choose here. That's one yeah. of the movies before 1980. It's the only one before yeah. 1980 on their list. And it, it's such a dark, weird, surreal comedy. Yeah. You... It, yeah, it really I is. I honestly don't think that the creators and actors of Harold and Maude would put it in any list of romantic comedies. Well, a lot of these, you make that point, and you watch Moonstruck, and of course, you know, Cher won the Academy Award. It's a it's a very warped and dark tale based on a, a screenplay by John Patrick Shanley, who kind of specializes in that kind of dark stuff. Top 10, Forgetting Sir Marshall, great film. Is it top 10? Rome? No, it's top 100. Yeah. Yeah. 
The Wedding Singer, My Best Friend's Wedding, Sleepless in Seattle at number seven, Notting Hill at number six. This is an argument that is often made. Mm-hmm. Is Notting Hill the best romantic comedy of all time? I, I have no argument with some of their top picks. Notting Hill, Jerry Maguire. I want to go back for a second to My Best Friend's Wedding. We've talked about this a little bit because there's been recent interviews. I don't know if there was a reunion of the cast. The setup of my best friend's wedding to me it's an interesting film and it's very well done but it's 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 wildly flawed and i know that julia roberts did this on purpose after some of these huge romantic comedies like pretty woman which by the way is number two she's the villain in my best friend's wedding julia roberts plays this you know food critic and her lifelong best friend it's uh dermot mulrooney not not the other Dermots or There's Delmoni, three guys. But yeah, I don't uh, her, it it's like, like Chris Pine, Chris Pratt. So she, like yeah, so, yeah, exactly. So her best friend is getting married to Cameron Diaz, who plays the wonderful, innocent, bright-eyed, loving young woman. And Julia Roberts' character, she decides she, you know, she's got to tell her longtime best friend that she loves him. The whole movie is her trying to sabotage the wedding until there's this famous scene that takes place in the women's bathroom. And then Comiskey Park in Chicago, where the Cameron Diaz character kind of lays her out and says, like, what? You're a monster. And that's how the, mo- the movie kind of ends. You know, <laughs> the best friend marries Cammy, which he should. And bitter Julia is hanging with Rupert Everett, who is gay, but pretends to be her hunky boyfriend. Again, to make the groom to be jealous so she can steal him. She's a terrible person. <laughs> and she doesn't end up with a happy ending and she doesn't deserve it. Okay, so the top 10 of these, and pretty much mostly deserving, Forgetting Sarah Marshall at number 10, that's a little bit of a controversial choice because there are people who go, well, is it really a top 10 romantic comedy of all time? It is very great, though, and you do see a guy who was an emergent star, he wrote it, Jason Segel, decides to put in the movie fully frontal naked. It's something it, we had never seen yeah, in films before. Yeah, it's that kind of just absolutely unfiltered comedic performance. It's really, really well done. I, I The Wedding Singer, I, I think Wedding Singer is a, is a good, solid Adam Sandler film, one of his best ones, and it's and it's sweet. There's no way in the world. I, I would say to you, Ro, that most of the people behind a lot of these movies, Adam Sandler would not tell you that The Wedding Singer is the ninth best romantic comedy of all time. Right, and you My know. Best Friend's Wedding, which you just talked yeah. about. Uh, Sleepless in Seattle at number seven. Notting Hill at number six. A lot of people would say that's number one. Yeah, it's a beautiful... I, I love that film. I really do. I love every element of it. Uh, and Jerry Maguire, you know, Cameron Crowe, by the way, has a couple of films here. Say Anything is, is a Cameron Crowe film, one of his early ones. Jerry Maguire is a beautiful romance. And and the, the, the genius of that is that it's a sweet, soft, sentimental movie about a sports agent. Think about that. <laughs> Think about that. <laughs> so, so rarely yeah, ever said. Right? right. Okay, he's a sports agent. Oh, is he Is he the villain? Does he get his comeuppance? No, he's the good guy. Number four is Clueless. Right. I never really got the romantic comedy part of Clueless. I just it, thought it was a, a one-person performance. Yeah, and it's you know it's it's Jane Austen redone. I, I like Clueless. There's some funny performances. It's interesting because Paul Rudd's in Clueless. Paul Rudd has a hilarious cameo in Forgetting Sarah Marshall. Uh, <laughs> four-year-old virgin. I mean, he's in a lot of these movies. I there's no way in the world clueless. I mean, it's 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 fun. It's very much of its time, which is kind of fun seeing the '90s technology and stuff. That's insane to have it at number four. And then number three, you've got Mail. Beautiful movie, fun, yeah. great, well done. And people do love it. And 
it's got to be somewhere in the top 10. Pretty Woman yeah. at number two. Now, you got to remember, this is a Disney movie about a hooker. Well, and, you know, Pretty Woman famously started off as a screenplay called 3000 which was the $3,000 a character of Edwards was going to pay this hooker. And in the original screenplay, I, I think she dies at the end, or she's back on the streets. It's very, very dark. And Gary Even Marshall... Las Vegas, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And Gary Marshall, you know, knew that he had something else here. It, Pretty Woman's so well done, and it's the, the movie that made... Julia Roberts was like 21, I think, Row, when she made this. I mean, she was just coming up. She'd done a few things, Mystic Pizza. Yep. She did a film called Flatliners. But this, this was one of those moments where you're like, generational leading lady, America's sweetheart stuff, just like, you know, some of the other performances here. When you watch it now... Yeah, there are some problems or there are some, you know, misgivings <laughs> and everything because he did hire her. She's a hooker, you know. Yeah. And they, they, they softened it because it was like she she was so sweet and then it was like at some point he's like, Well, how long have you been doing this? She's like, Oh, three times and I only went through with it once. So so she's not really a sex worker. Mm -hmm. I want to mention too, briefly too, it's interesting with Sleepless in Seattle and You've Got Mail, because those are Tom Hanks Meg Ryan movies, right? Both of them. Mm -hmm. In both of those films, they also did a film called Joe versus the Volcano, which is written by John Patrick Shanley, who did Moonstruck. But in both uh, Sleepless in Seattle and You've Got Mail, it's interesting because Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan don't have a lot of screen time together in either one of those right. films. Sleepless in Seattle, they only see each other at the top of the Empire State Building and once across the tra you know, in traffic. And You've Got Mail, they know each other a little bit, but they're rivals because his big book chain, this is how outdated this is, his blockbuster book chain is going to knock out her little shop around the corner. And again, there's only the scene at the end where the dog comes running and he realizes it's you. So it's it, everyone talks about their chemistry and their chemistry is in separate scenes. And that movie had been made four times previous in some iteration, a musical, a darker comedy, yeah. throughout the entire 20th century. So they weren't really reinventing the wheel. And at number one, When Harry Met Sally. Which is just you know brilliantly conceived. Nora Ephron, right? wrote the screenplay rob reiner directed it and it, you know the, the most interesting thing there i think was billy crystal playing this sort of again woody allen-esque character right. and we had, we knew he was really really funny but we believed him also in the romantic scenes we already knew meg ryan another one of the you know reigning you know america's sweethearts uh was wonderful but they that that is a beautiful romantic comedy I, I would put that in the top 10 for sure and the fact that Annie Hall, which it was an homage to, yeah, is not doesn't on the list. make the top yeah. fifty is no. its own sorry, you know, issue. And I understand the whole cancel culture thing and everything. I don't agree yeah, but, with but, it, but that's but in you know, this case, yeah. but it's and nothing not that right. uh, Rock Hudson and Doris Day ever did, nothing that Catherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy ever did, or Jimmy Stewart. Those hacks, in those black and white filmed hacks, they didn't make the list, but the Wedding Planner did. There you, go. <laughs> you won't get over that. Kill me now. All right, let me tell you about Portillo's. The greatest single fast casual cuisine experience you're going to have anywhere on the planet Earth, right down to the poppy seed bun. You're going to enjoy it so much because it's one of the million great ingredients that Portillo's uses, whether it's the Italian beef or the sausage or the legendary chocolate cake. That's just all the beginning. Mm -hmm. The fries, the salads, the chicken. I'm telling you, if you have Portillo's. The burger. It, the burger's great. Yes. That's right. and, and you can get beer at the Portillo's, too, if you go nice. into the store. Nice. I'm just going to tell you right now. If you have a Portillo's near you and you've not eaten at a Portillo's before, let's say you live in California, Arizona, or Florida, where it's relatively new, you want to check it out. 
take the Roe and Roper endorsement here. It's one of the finest experiences you're going to have ever in that kind of a food environment, like fast casual. You know, it's not exactly fast food. You can sit down. It's nicer, but it's super great. Portillo's.com, P-O-R-T-I-L-L-O-S.com. Ask your friends in Chicago about it, Portillo's.com. So we're looking back now at the television series that started 50 years ago in 1972, which is a monumental year. And MASH, you're hearing the theme right here, is certainly right at the top of those things that still to this day people watch reruns of. Right, yeah. Based on a film from the previous year of the same name, very kind of different context. It is a very strange film, Robert Altman film. A lot of people talking over each other. All of a sudden in the middle of this political comedy that's really about Vietnam, even though it takes place in Korea. Exactly. It has a football game emerge in the Nine middle of it. Nine-minute segment and, yeah. and all kinds of nicknames and terms that would never be used now. Very, very dark. But this theme, the MASH theme, is based on a song called Suicide is Painless. Mm. And they play it in the film, a guy on a guitar, while yeah. a guy thinks he's killing himself because he's yeah. so upset at being in the middle of this war. Yeah. He wants to be put to sleep by this medical team. It's chilling when you hear that song in real life, and yeah. then you think, here was like, like a happy sitcom song for a decade on television. Yeah, well, and you know, we've talked before, Roe, about how in the 60s, network television was largely about you know rural, dopey comedies, escapism. I mean, the Flintstones were a primetime show, the, you know, the comic Batman series. Gomer Pyle, USMC, took place during the 60s, and there was a guy that joined the Marines, and they never once mentioned the Vietnam War. But by the early 70s, the tide had turned. You know, American sentiment was against participation in the in the Vietnam War. We still had two or three years before there was full evacuation. And as you mentioned, MASH was about the Korean War, but it was definitely about the Vietnam War. So all of a sudden you had this, it was a comedy, but it had a lot of dark and heavy and insightful and smart moments. It's still one of the greatest TV series of all time. The series finale, I know, is still one of the top 10 most watched right. of all time. And MASH made its debut in 1972. CBS basically overturned their entire primetime lineup between 1970 and 1972. And much to the chagrin of network executives who were fighting against it and consumers who were like, what's happening here? You're taking away the Beverly Hillbillies and you're replacing them with all this political commentary like Archie Bunker. Yeah, and Maude, B. Arthur and the spinoff. And, you know, there were all these famous episodes that dealt with assault and... Uh, women's rights and abortion that had right. never been addressed on television. Maude debuted in 1972. Which is interesting because B. Arthur, always as a kid, I watched it <laughs> and they were talking about all these things. And I'm like, why is grandma talking about that? She always yeah. played older than she was, but she was actually younger. Yeah. Clearly. Brilliant she was an actress, right. actually, who got kind of stereotyped like, oh, Maude, let's make fun of this big, you know, body, loudmouth woman in her crocheted sweaters. And was actually absolutely brilliant acting. 
by B. Arthur. Yes. Uh, also, you know, not everything was very serious. The Price is Right. <laughs> I just felt that that had debuted in 1940, you know, like on one television. But it actually debuted in 1972, Ro. Uh, there was a daytime and nighttime version of it. Yes, again, you know, game shows huge at that point. Another show, and, you know, listen, again, we have to talk about the legacy of the creator and everything, but Fat Albert, the yep. animated cartoon that Bill Cosby, he had started off with these brilliant stand-up routines in the 60s about his childhood, mm -hmm. you know, and stylized, and then Fat Albert. And, again, we know you're not going to see most of Bill Cosby's works because of his monstrous behavior through the decades, but that was a brilliant series because, again, first of all, it featured an African-American cast, you know, all these young animated actors, but it also it addressed a lot of issues about poverty and assimilation and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it was it was a landmark series. You can't deny the greatness of Fat Albert. No, you can't. Mm -hmm. And I, I want to point out, the Waltons yes. was CBS's, also debuting in 1972, was CBS's sop back to yeah. sort of the rural, rustic, yeah, it thing was. that they had built. I, I, and I know there, I think there were some novels or it might have been based on some true life experiences of the author growing up in the Depression. And again, you know, really good cast and it was well done. But this is that this was more the old school thing. Like, let's make the Depression entertaining. Uh, this rural family. And they all said good night because there were 174 kids in this shitty cabin. Right. They didn't have TV. But that we had was their TV. TV. Like a nice pastoral landscapes. Yeah, I got to tell you, I hated that show. I, I was not a fan, but again, it, it left its mark. Here's a show that I actually loved. I think it only lasted uh, for three seasons. It was Kung Fu. <laughs> uh, and this is a series that, you know, had this great element of spirituality. David Carradine was great. Now, as Kwai Chang Kane, he was half American, half Chinese. They would mm -hmm. never have him in this role these days. They literally would tape his eyes back to make him appear half Asian uh -huh. but it was this spiritual show and there was always you know he was he was walking the earth there's like you know that's like in Pulp Fiction you know you're gonna walk the earth like you know uh, Kane in Kung Fu uh, Samuel L. Jackson says it the reason why David Carradine was then later cast in Kill Bill Volumes 1 and 2 because Tarantino was so informed and enlightened and loved this series. But it really had these great, you know, it had this opening sequence where his mentor was having him try to snatch the pebble, you know, and then you'll only be able to leave the Shaolin Temple. And he he was a peace-loving wanderer. But at the 20-minute mark and the 50-minute mark of every episode, he'd get in a brawl. <laughs> you know, they'd knock his cap off and they'd call him a horrible racial slur and he would say, I don't want to fight. And then nine cowboys would end up on the floor in the saloon. And the yeah, who was that stranger? But I love that film. I love that series, Kung Fu. Yeah, and it did uh, result in the rise of the furniture store in America because... All the kids of the 1970s who watched that Including decided yours truly. they were yeah. going to break every piece of wood oh, yeah. ever in the house. We did a lot of that, and it. I actually signed up, uh, actually a keto, but you know, like classes and everything. So it did make its mark, and mm -hmm. uh, it definitely has a cultural influence. I don't think we get the Karate Kid if we don't have Kung Fu right. a decade earlier, sir. And the uh, you got to give it to PBS. They launched Zoom, which was 
a sop to the kids who were five or seven years older than the kids yeah. who were watching Sesame Street. We're gonna zoom, 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 ah, zoom. Yeah. And I, I, reading up on this row, I, I didn't realize at the time because I was kind of the target audience, but you know, the genius, the evil genius at the time was the kids on Zoom, they'd sign up to six-month contracts and then they'd get rid of them. And pr- sort of like MTV VJs. They right. did that in the 80s. Yeah. So as soon as they got, and they had them sign contracts and they couldn't do anything else for three years after they were on Zoom so that you know kids would still identify them as the fun kids on Zoom, 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 ah, Zoom. And WWF Championship yeah. Wrestling is 50 years old. Yeah. I had no idea. That was the first big one that really, tur- you know, listen, wrestling on TV was a staple since the 50s, sure. but this took it to the to the next level. Uh, also want to mention Sanford and Son, oh, my yeah. friend. One of the most famous. Quincy Jones did that theme song, I believe, to Sanford and Son. Of course, the great Red Fox uh, it, it was just, it was kind of a classic sitcom, actually, you know, old fashioned, but very funny. And again, pioneering because of the African American leads there, which we hadn't seen in a lot of sitcoms up to that point. 100%. But then there's the ABC <laughs> After School Special, which ran for probably a decade, right? From a good the 70s into the yeah, 80s. Into the early 80s, yes. Yes, I know this because <laughs> I auditioned for one of these as a child actor. Ah! Yeah, which one? <laughs> I have no freaking clue which one. A young Rokan was like in a casting call. Who were you going to play? Do you remember? I was playing a uh, uh, you know a son who was being uh, spoken to. All I know is the pages that they sent me to read were <laughs> were uh, a son who's sitting across his dad on twin beds. Okay, and. The dad is telling the son how proud he is after the son's admitting to something. Okay. That was the plot of every after school special. Right, I know. And, and became, I wish Oh man, if you I wish you'd gotten the part. I I and the, and I just remember the dad's lines better than my lines, oh, which is another God. reason I didn't get the part. Yeah, well you always remember your father's lines better than your own <laughs> when you look at your childhood. <laughs> that's that's really true. Yeah. Uh and and uh, and I just remember oh, my God. dad cuz my dad did the lines with me. Oh my and God. My my dad There's some layers of psychotherapy oh, down the road. Oh, the whole thing's fucked up. <laughs> I I all I know is that my dad said you know, I wish this world were chock full of kids like you. Oh, geez. And I'm like, what the fuck does chock full of anything mean? I did not know what that term meant. You got hung up on the terminology. Right. I was like, does I don't mean a lot. I don't One? get it. I, I turned into Woody Allen immediately. Uh, uh, I don't understand. Uh, uh, what, what's my motivation? I don't go, what am I supposed oh to God. feel in this scene? I, I mean, I literally, I it was one of, and I went oh, in wow. to, uh, they were doing casting all over the country. Oh, jeez. And they used to pluck a lot of kids out of the Midwest yeah. for those Because they wanted that kind of right. all-American Midwest everyman, not the New York, L.A. overtrained actor, right? right. They yeah. did, well, they also didn't want kids that, that anybody had ever seen. Oh, yeah, I stuff. know that kid. He's, yeah. yeah, he's Kung Fu's nephew. <laughs> right, exactly. So they wanted, so they were always looking for, for new talent. And I, um, I just... Oh my God! I'll just—I I was so devastated. There are like four or five times in my career where I've been just devastated by the loss of a of a show right. or a yeah, part yeah. or whatever it is, and that was my first devastation. And then I got over it because I saw it. And you're like, like, oh God, I would have been mocked in school for years. Right. Well, that's the thing about you know, it became a punchline for comics for 20 years. What are we in an after school special? Because they were teaching lessons, and it's interesting because if you look at the various titles through the years, row again, it's the early 70s, and I feel like a lot of the episodes and specials were based on 
uh, Hollywood executives explaining to their children why they had left mom. <laughs> you know, there were a lot of like, my new mom. You know, <laughs> Billy lives at home. I, I see dad on that. the weekend. I could have worked that out. But then it's interesting too. First of all, a lot of actors who went on to become famous, Cynthia Nixon and Rosanna Arquette and Jodie Foster, they, you know, they would get cast in these things. But there was, it, some of it was pretty groundbreaking because they did, you know, there was a, before Bad News Bears, there, Jodie Foster played like an 11 year old girl who tried out for her brother's little league team. And, oh, he hates her for that. You know, which nowadays, of course, the cleanup hitter, you know, is, is right. a girl and, and there's great athletes in all these sports. Uh, there's another one where a kid's the star athlete on the football team or whatever, but what he really wants to do is dance ballet. Well, that's Billy Elliot, you know. <laughs> uh, so th- there are there were some that dealt with uh, divorce. Uh, there were several uh, 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 after school specials about alateens, about teenagers going. Yeah. You know, and again, all that due respect, later. I think. But I yes. think again, that was like you know, the executive producer was like, I need to, I need a after school special to explain to my kids what's going on. So even though a lot of them were hokey message movies and stuff, some of them were kind of groundbreaking and they, they addressed things. There was one about a friendship between a young boy and an older black man because they both loved Jackie Robinson. So it was an, you know, uh, an exercise in kind of, you know, telling Jackie well, Robinson's story. I can just tell you from the three pages that I had to read for whatever my uh, after school special was, it was nothing like that. Well, some of the titles are kind of like, you know, Jimmy wants to meet you after school and the bully's going to beat you up and you're trying to get out of it, you know. And they, they weren't, listen, they kind of, you know, they would turn these out, you know, in rapid fire fashion. So the, the production values weren't the greatest. Yeah. But but for a lot of us, if you were coming home from school yeah, it was in the 70s, it was like, well, I could watch reruns of the Brady Bunch. Or I could watch, you know, the the afternoon movie, which would be chopped into four minute segments between, you know, weather updates, or at least this is some original content, you know, after you know the seventh soap opera of the day. Kids, there were only two newscasts a day on local television. Yeah. There was six o'clock news and ten o'clock news, or if you're on the East Coast, it was six o'clock and eleven o'clock news. Yeah. Wheel of Fortune would play at seven. So there was all these blocks of local programming. And I know these days it could be video games or whatever else, but the truth is, even you know, 50 years ago, the television was often the babysitter. If mom and dad were right. both working or you got home from school before you did your homework or after you 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 plopped down in front of the television. And the the youngest kid had to sit the closest because if you didn't have a remote, you made him change the channels. <laughs> so there's a lot of stuff that came out in nineteen that debuted in 1972 that has resonated for decades afterward, either because of the quality or the subject matter or trying something different. The Runner Roper Podcast is brought to you by AmericanEagle.com Studios. AmericanEagle.com is a full-service global digital agency providing best-in-class web design, development, hosting, digital marketing services, and so much more. Visit AmericanEagle.com for more information. Renee Nelson and Tim Alanius are our executive producers. Very special thanks to our long-suffering production director, Demita Menezes. See you next time.